You are listening to Read It, Roll It, Hole It. He's two putts from victory. Only needs one. Welcome, golfers, to the next episode of the Read It, Roll It, Hole It podcast. Today we've got uh, special guest Daniel Carahar. I told you I wouldn't be able to say your name. Daniel Carahar on the uh, on the podcast. Welcome, Dan. Thanks. Glad to be here. And everybody pretty much butchers it, so it's par for the course, pretty much. <laughs> happy days, happy days. So, Daniel, you are a um, a top fifty instructor in the world. You uh, reside in. Uh, Atlantic Beach, Florida. You teach in Jacksonville at Blue Cypress Golf Club. Is that, uh, is that, have I got my homework right? Close. Those are old stats, but I was at, I'm now at the <laughs> golf club at Southampton, which is uh, just south of Jacksonville. So it's okay. like right on the city between Jacksonville and St. Augustine. Okay. Happy days. And you're also a coach to, uh, many sort of PGA tour stars and European tour stars. Is that right? I have a handful. <laughs> Keep you busy. They do. Excellent. Up, at, up at night, especially the guys that are playing on the other side of the world that uh, time zones aren't exactly always, don't always play nice with my schedule as far as uh, optimum times to be on the phone or taking a video call. Um, with a player in the middle of the night that is nervous about what's about to happen or can't figure it out. Oh, really? What's uh, tell me more about that? What's that? Uh, what's that like? How does that work? For me, I probably am too nice when it comes to availability. Like I am emotionally invested in every player I teach. Um, I don't really know how to do it any other way. I think that's, that's the part that's fun to me. Like I wouldn't do this if that wasn't a part of it. So like if I get a text message at midnight, it's like, can you talk for a little bit? And I'm not completely in bed and have a sleep. I'm probably going to answer it and then hop on the phone uh, and try to solve whatever small fire is going on. And as a general rule, I know that they know what time it is, so they probably wouldn't be contacting me if it wasn't something that was at least somewhat uh, urgent. That's uh, that's good. It's interesting you say this sort of emotional attachment there. I've spoke to, you know, many coaches who coach on tour, and a lot of them will say, you know, you've got to try and take that emotion out to because some players will come, some will go, and some may come back, right? But how do, you, uh, how do you deal with the ups and downs of that? My attitude is always bad. I think my mom stressed it as growing up is assume positive intent. Um, so, like, if someone chooses to go talk to someone else or seek another opinion, my attitude is they're trying to do what's best for them. Um, I may completely disagree with that. I think they're going the wrong direction, but at the end of the day, I cannot fault somebody for trying to better themselves. Um, and so to me, it's taking the ego out of it that it's not about me. At the end of the day, this is completely a service industry where my job is to help someone else. And so if they feel like they will be better talking to someone else, it is what it is. And then if they find out they were wrong, I'm generally here to, uh, if they want to come back. There's been a lot of leave 
and come back after a year or whatever amount of time that it ends up being, which I'm always, I try to never burn a bridge or end things badly just because for the most part, it's all positive. Like they just want to get better. And especially the ones that are smart, that are seekers of information, that are trying to learn more is somebody else could say the exact same thing. But because this is such a people oriented business that if that other person reaches them better with the same information, they'll realize it was essentially the same thing, but they'll be better, maybe be better hearing it from someone else. Cool. I love that. I love that. You're very sort of humble there and, you know, taking the ego, ego out of it and, and they're the important ones, not you. It's, uh, it's good to hear. Generally, they let you know it too, <laughs> that uh, they're the ones who's hitting every shot. And at the end of the day, I think coaches generally get either not enough or too much credit. Like it tends to swing both extremes that if a player generally plays well, it's all on the player being good. And I think generally if they're playing bad, it's the coach's fault that they're playing bad. There's the general, I think it's probably in between on all of that. Yeah, no, totally agree. Um, Daniel, just going back to sort of your, um, you know, your early days, if you like, you've, I think you turned pro in 2009. Um, you know, you've worked hard. I've, I've heard you on the On The Mark podcast talking about, you know, the growth mindset, working hard, building a successful business, which you spoke about on the um, Cordy Walker In The Life Of, I think it was, podcast. And, um, you know, getting free income streams and, and really growing. What I really would like to know is what drives you to sort of wake up every morning and want to improve? To me, my favorite thing in life is pretty much trying to figure stuff out. Um, I like problem solving and then creating things. Um, so in college, before I left to turn pro trying to play, I was a mechanical and aerospace engineering major and have always kind of tinkered with things. So okay. like nowadays I make my hobby, like as a hobby, I make putters, wedges, knives, uh, working on a watch. Um, I like to figure things out. And so as a kid, um, couldn't afford golf lessons. So it pretty much came down to reading as much as I could and trying to figure it out for myself. And I'm pretty sure golf something you never fully figure out. So I think it's a constant just trying to, even if you have an idea of what you like to see or kind of how you like things to work, there's always exceptions. And when you're dealing with people, I probably spend more time working on trying to get better and more efficient at the communication side and just dealing with the individual and kind of creating ownership where you get buy-in as quick as possible to where someone's not arguing. So you're not wasting half a lesson convincing someone you're right. You're trying to spend the bulk of it actually fixing the problem and you can get someone to buy in in kind of the shortest period of time. Love that. How do you work on that part of your um, game or your coaching, if you like, the communication side? 
I think it, I read a decent amount from coaches that it's a lot of other sports um, that have nothing to do with golf usually. Um, and then it's also a lot of just observation, like teaching on tour at a pretty young age and then being around other great teachers. I saw things that I think are, some people are extremely good at like big strengths. And then some of things that I think derail people that are really brilliant, that could be way more successful that aren't and try to just take as many good pieces as they could and recognize some of the flaws and where everybody has flaws, like everybody has <laughs> issues that are going to kind of hold them back, but trying to at least be as honest as you can about those and kind of recognizing where your weak spots are and either trying to fix it or kind of avoid it. Or in some instances, just being okay with having a weakness. Like you're not going to be everything to everyone kind of at all times. There's no way to make every person happy a hundred percent of the time. Cool. Cool. What other sports do you uh, like learning from? Oh, other coaches in other sports and what have you learned maybe from them? Basketball interests me a lot just because of the fact that like in most team sports, one player is not going to make that big of a difference. Um, mm. You still need the rest of the team, but basketball is one where one or two elite players can make someone go from one of the worst teams in the league to one of the best teams in the league. So mm. basketball ha and the players know it. And they have, especially this day and age, are pretty empowered. And so dealing with the personalities of kind of big time individuals and how to handle people that have big egos and are kind of alpha males that want to run the show and be in charge, even though they don't actually know what they're doing, um, is kind of a skill, like learning how to make something seem like it's their idea. Um, like if Julian listens to this, he probably won't love it, but there's a lot of times when we're working together, we'll talk about something. I plant a seed. And then a week later, he's like, Hey, I had this thought. And like, I came up with this idea and it's literally what we talked about a week ago, but in his mind, he's made it his own idea. And I don't care. <laughs> like it's that it made it now, if that makes him believe it more because he thinks he came up with it, like that's... <laughs> You're cool with that. Yeah, that's, it's not about who came up with the idea. It's just that the goal is to facilitate improvement. And to me, it's a, there's a back and forth. It's not a kind of, you have to do as I say, I'm not super dogmatic. It's kind of like, what do you want to do? And how can I help you accomplish that the best I can? Clearly a wonderful mind, uh, Daniel. You know, you've, you've got a great sort of mindset there of that player-coach um, relationship. And, uh, yeah, it's good, good to hear. I think it's, it's not like a, a teacher and the student, is it? I think it needs to be more of a, like, open conversation and, and help each other, if that makes sense. Yeah, because there's plenty of things that... I've learned and grown by being around great players that I was a pretty good player 
um, obviously wasn't good enough. Um, and if anything, I've actually gotten better. Like my low scores are lower, hardly playing and hardly practicing now than they were when I was trying to play because I think I understand way more about the performance side and what it takes to shoot a good round and kind of how to keep it going than I did when I was practicing all the time and trying to play where when I was trying to play because I leaned so hard on the mechanical side I was definitely overly mechanical and too much of a perfectionist to really perform at a high level when it mattered because every little mistake was like the sky is falling and the world's coming to an end and I would focus on every flaw instead of ever seeing kind of the positives or what the good parts were. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. With um, just going back to basketball, uh, basketball, did you watch the Last Dance documentary? A little bit of it. I didn't watch all of it. Um, but I was kind of into basketball, like that was my childhood. So a lot of it I was around for. Um, so it kind of sparked, I saw enough of it to kind of spark a lot of the memories of, but it's a perfect example where I think Tiger did it in his prime. Jordan definitely did it, as you can see in the documentary about how they would almost create this false narrative in their head to try to be hyper-competitive they basically do could trick their mind into believing whatever they had to believe to have success. And I think part of that, like Julie, me telling Julian that this might be a good idea. And then him coming back a week later saying, Hey, I figured this out. And it's basically what I said, he's going to do whatever he's going to do in his mind to make it his own and to believe a hundred percent in what that is. And I think each person's a little bit different and but a lot of those alphas, it's got to be their idea, whether it's actually their idea or not. You have to make it and kind of allow them to have it be their idea. Yeah, and I loved it. It's, uh, it's crazy how their, their mind, Jordan's mind, talking about the last dance, how it worked to manipulate the situation was just quite amazing, really. Yeah, mind's powerful. You can make yourself believe... Almost anything. That's a powerful statement there. I love it. Yeah, and it can go obviously both positive and negative. So the funny thing I think is that is me someone knowing that I'm tended when I play to be hyper mechanical. If anything, with tour players, I'm the opposite and try to get them to go. The thing I use all the time, as I said, don't make uh perfection the enemy of better like it doesn't it just has to be better it doesn't have like this next swing doesn't have to be all the way where we want it it just has to move a little bit in the right direction and it's someone because i know that if i was the one getting the lesson my immediate mindset would be like well that was crap that was that was if it was only 60 percent better i'd be like well that's a d like that's not good enough like that's terrible but it's better than you started with an hour ago. So it's moving in the right direction. And I think the hardest part of playing golf for a living is the perspective or lack of perspective because you have to be good tomorrow. Like it's, 
your livelihood relies on you performing pretty much week in and week out and every day. And that part when it's not going well is ridiculously stressful. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Just going back again to, um, you, you mentioned that when you were playing, you were technical and you didn't score as well as you do now when you just turn up and don't practice and hit it. And you learned some good nuggets along the way. Could you share maybe a pinpoint a couple of those nuggets out to share with the listeners that maybe will help them take it to the course this week and score lower scores? Yeah, especially for kind of the average golfer, what I kind of figured out was that as hard as a golf swing is to change for the better, is just as hard to change for the worse. So odds are, if you're hitting it great one day and you're hitting it bad the next day, if we film the two, they're pretty much going to be the exact same thing. It's just the bell-shaped curve of, you know, the one is at the high end and kind of way above what the average is and the other one's the low end, but it's this part of the same curve. And your golf swing didn't change. You didn't do it. You're not all of a sudden swinging way worse than you were the day that it worked is you're just seeing the roller coaster of probability of success and failure. And so to me, it's that not sweating the small stuff that odds are it's something little and it can be as simple as like, I got a bad night's sleep or I was up too late or I'm not focused. Like something happened personally where I can't focus while playing today. So it's not going to be as good. Like there's so many outside influences that when I was playing anything that didn't go right, it was always golf swing. Like it was always, I'm not doing something right. Not that. And then realizing that good or bad, I could film 20 swings, trying to make a major change and it moved like 1%. And it's kind of like, well, if you're, playing golf and you're not trying to change it it's not going to move at all so if you play a bad round after a good round those averaged out (laughs) and as your mechanics get better that average gets higher but on the bad rounds a lot of the time it's just waiting it out and you can turn a bad start into a mediocre round kind of an average round as long as you don't go hit the panic button and start trying to change things And, you know, the one thing I stress to both good players and amateurs is that as a general rule, the way to be consistent is keep doing the same thing over and over again. And so if every time something doesn't work, you immediately want to change something, you're practicing being inconsistent. And the key is to me is to have a game plan. doesn't matter whether the next shot is good or bad, that whatever piece you're working on, the answer is, keep track like each swing the intent stays the same and you'll just get better at it over time but that just because it didn't work on that swing it doesn't mean you need to actually change what you're trying to accomplish or change what you're trying to do it just means you haven't done it enough to be good at it yet it's um yeah so true isn't it i think that i see like the better golfers or the top golfers like on the tour when they're not playing their best, they still grind out a score. And I think that a lot of amateur golfers will, you know, hit a bad shot and that's it. 
I'm playing shit today. That's the end of it. May as well end our now and walk in. It's a, and but it is a a difficult. It's easy for us to say, oh, don't do that. You know, just just stay positive. But that is difficult to do. Have you got any advice to perhaps how you can stay patient? I think as a general rule, golf swing and how we act ties a lot into personality traits. Um, so as general, like if someone's doing a lesson or a kid comes for a lesson, I can pretty much tell whether they're like an alpha or a bit like I can pretty much tell a lot about someone in five swings about who they are and kind of how they're going to react. And, and it's because a lot of them, especially with kids, they're not trying to swing like someone up. They're not trying to be different. like that. It, their personality comes out in the golf swing. So it's easy to kind of see and odds are you're not going to change that at least not wide margins in a short period of time. So the person that tends to overreact to misses is the person that tends to be super mechanical, hypercritical, like tends to overthink things and get in their own way a lot. To that person, I would keep detailed stats. And it allows you to separate yourself is that the goal is to kind of have these stats move in the right direction, kind of have a, maybe a goal and what towards the end when I actually started playing better but still made the realization that I wasn't going to be good enough is I knew almost strokes gained before strokes gained existed it was pretty much like I have these stats that I want to hit and if I hit these stats over the long haul the scores are going to be good enough so it's kind of like even if I hit 15 greens today and didn't shot 73 if I did that a hundred times, I wouldn't average 73. Like there's always going to be the, so like it turned it into many goals where I need to hit it this many fairways. I need to do like, I kind of figuring out what you need to do to shoot the score that you need, you want to actually end up with. And that allows it to me as you play one bad hole. Well, that's just one hole out of 18. Like you can compartmentalize it to where, this next hole, the goal is still to hit the fairway and then hit the green. And it allows you to focus on, you're always going to focus on the bad. That person, like I still get mad and recognize, like, and hurt over every bad shot, but it's part of a hole where I can also see the good. Like it's the, what I try to tell people, if that's who you are, and that's definitely my personality, is you got to treat yourself almost like you're, it's an emotional bank account is you can't have withdrawals without deposits. So if you're going to beat yourself up over every bad shot you hit, you also have to pat yourself on the back for the good ones. Um, I got to a point to where every time I hit a good shot, I was like, that's what you're supposed to do. So there was no positive energy. And then every time I hit a bad one, it got super negative quick. So then I was just miserable to be around because it was all negativity all the time. And at best I was like, Oh, you shoot 66. Fine. That's what you're supposed to do. Like that should happen every day. Like yeah. you got to where there was just no positive, anything going out. And that's probably the healthiest thing I did was stop playing tournament golf. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's uh, I love that. The emotional sort of roller coaster. And um, I heard someone say something similar about like the, the fuel tank, you've got to put fuel in. If you're burning the fuel, you can't just, yeah. can't just burn the fuel. You've got to keep feeding it. And uh, that goes for, you know, 
for golf but for for like life as well doesn't it lots of lots of different things if you want it to work you gotta sort of put fuel in if it's coming out so uh yeah love that that's cool the um just talking about that dealing with emotion did you hear the tiger woods comment to charlie woods about uh if he hits a bad shot the he doesn't mind him getting angry but if he what was the comment he said that if he hits a bad shot make sure it's as important as breathing that you forget about it for the next shot yeah i i didn't hear that but the rule i generally give players is i gave like you get it's not a hard rule because again i'm not super dogmatic but i try to stress that you want like i run hot and cold so it's like, get it out, be super angry. Don't try to hold it in, but you got a 30 second window and anything more than 30 seconds, you just start to look like an a-hole. So it's just like, get it out, get it over with, and then go back to normal and be perfectly fine. But like there is an emotion, sometimes like they're using a physical trigger, like for me yelling or doing something, causes an emotional release it allows you to get over it and i think the person that needs to do that when they try to hold it in when it finally lets go you get what some of the spaniards do where they get super when they let it go and it gets super uh super tantrumy at sometimes <laughs> all the wrong times definitely definitely the um did you manage to see any of the golf with Tiger Woods and Charlie Woods? Did you see some of that? I just watched the just watched the highlights. Um, I'm thankful enough to be fairly busy, um, so <laughs> finding time to like sit down and watch TV or have a big TV at the house. But I would say it's maybe turned on for like a couple hours a week, uh, usually on Sunday, probably watching football. Um, but other than that, it's usually off until maybe like nine o'clock at night. And I might catch some highlights or something here or there, but don't really have time to uh, sit there and watch the whole thing. Yeah. That's cool. I, as a uh, just sort of um, just out of interest, really. So if Tiger Woods was to ring you up and say, look, I want you looking after, I want you to look after Charlie as his swing coach, what would be your thoughts on that? And and not, I think like technically, I don't think you'd probably look at him and go, there's much to do there, but how would you coach him mentally as more than anything? And what would be your fears around that? One, I would try to... For him, sorry. Yeah. To me, the biggest question would be kind of what are you guys looking for? Because obviously... He's got a good golf swing that you could build around for kind of years to come. And he's got a dad who is one of the strongest mentally guys on the planet. So it's kind of like, I would start the attitude is they don't really need me. So what, there's a reason that they're coming to me. So is it, does he just need to hear it from someone other than dad or do, but to me, before I said anything would be trying to figure out why they're, coming to see me and what they're actually looking for. Because again, at the end of the day, this is a service business. And I think my jo job or role is 
trying to figure out what someone actually wants. And sometimes that's tough because what they say they want and what they really want aren't necessarily the same thing and try to give them what they actually want. Um, and if you do that, you generally end up with happy people that keep coming back kind of time and time again. But for him, he does so many things well. Like the goal to him is gradually nudging it in the right direction and not try to put any time frame. I think the most dangerous thing you can do, especially with kids, is to make them feel like there's a time frame for success or there's a timetable where they have to get good within a certain kind of sequence or frame. And because it add golf is already hard enough and super stressful is adding stress to that by putting a fake window on when you have to be good. That doesn't actually mean anything is adding stress for the sake of adding stress. So to me, it would be about him realizing he doesn't have to be tiger. Like he needs to be whatever the best version of him is. And we won't know what that is until he's there, but that, having his dad be who he is as an asset and try to make it not a burden that he's got to try to do something extra just because of who his dad is. And I think that's a tough thing to live with for anybody whose dad is a known quantity in the thing that you're trying to pursue. Like I think it was tough for Gary Nicholas. I think it was tough for uh, Michael B. Jordan, which is why he's probably an actor instead of a basketball player. Um, I think it's tough to kind of follow in the footsteps and Some big footsteps, aren't they? They're big, big shoes to fill. Yeah. And I think it's easy. I think it, a lot of times that like Michael B. Jordan seeing success in something else, he took the drive and determination that his dad had, but did it with a completely different area that he could make his own. Um, I think you could do that within the same sport. I just think it's harder because everywhere you look, everyone's comparing you to your dad and kind of tuning out that noise and just saying like, and it's even for amateur golfers, like I always say, like it's about making it better. It doesn't have to be. So the comparison isn't based on some model or idea of perfection if you're rating how your improvement is going, it's just based on where was I start, where was the starting point and how far along am I? So it's have it, it's kind of making the comparison where you started, not I'm a failure if I'm not all the way at the end of the finish line yet. Like as long as you're making progress on that journey, you will eventually get to the finish line. Love it. I love it. That's cool. And how's the journey with uh, Julian Suri uh, been over? How long have you been working with him? And uh, yeah, talk us through the ups and downs of coaching him over the last however many years. Yeah, we started um, a couple of years ago where he got a, he had like a partial European tour card and a full challenge tour card. Um, yep. And I've known Julian, like he was winning everything as like a 12 year old when I was 18, 19 years old. Um, so like I had known who he was and kind of, we played in some of the same events, but it was cause he was like 13 playing in US amateur qualifier. Like he was incredibly good. Um, and I kind of knew his story and uh, he stubborn, definitely ultra alpha male and 
so he kind of always did things on his own. He never had a coach. Um, and then he played his first couple of events and was finally like hit rock bottom and was kind of like, I need some assistance on this. Um, and I was already teaching his younger brother at the time. And he had come to most of his brother's lessons and kind of just sat back and watched and kind of listened. Um, and he it was after, I think the African Open that year, he texted me on the airplane on the ride home is basically like, I'm flying back. I'm going to be, I land tonight. What's your schedule tomorrow? Wow. Like, let's get started. That was cool. And then it kind of went from there. And I've been lucky. It's lucky and unlucky. Like I tell anybody, anytime I get a tour player, generally, I'm not the first option. Like I have a good reputation, but I'm not, I know where I fit in kind of the pecking order. And so usually if I get a guy, it's either a young guy who hasn't had a coach before and it's somewhat convenient because they're local or it's a guy who's been with a lot of other guys who's exhausted. Thing. And it's kind of like a last hurrah before they give up. Like it's kind of, uh, so it's a usually less than ideal situation in some respects, but the benefit is, is almost every pro I've worked with is a hundred percent commitment and buy-in is because usually if they come to see me, it's someone who's self-taught who decided they need a coach or which is kind of rock bottom or they've been to a bunch of other coaches and I'm the last, like the bottom of the rung on the ladder that they're trying. And so as a general rule, they're ready to listen. And I think that's the one benefit of some players might be a little bit further from kind of the, where they want to be then is ideal from a coaching standpoint, but they're also probably the most ready to listen that they've been in their entire career. Um, and that was Julian. Julian made the decision when we switched is he didn't play an event for, I think a month um, as a rookie with only conditional status. Um, but he made the commitment that like, I'm not going back over until I feel like I could win. So we'd work on something. He'd go play like a small mini tour event here come back, tell me what happened. And then we work on it again. And it was kind of like fix things, test it under some competition, fix things that, and then his first event back, he finished runner up to Matt Wallace and then went on a run where he went from like, I think around 1200 ish in the world to, I think he ended that season like 86th in the world. Uh, you done good. Yeah. And, but it was the perfect scenario of, yeah, I helped him, but it was also somebody who was one of the most driven individuals that I've ever met in my entire life, um, who was at a perfect point in his career where he was ready to listen and open to changes and did the process right and kind of uh, did everything in the most efficient way to try and get good and then went on a run. And then more recently, he's fought, like he's had a couple injuries, which I think then create doubt because you're, even though you're healed, you're kind of swinging around that injury for a little while. 
worried about re-engineering it. So the latest is, was a wrist operation. And then I think during that time, you have time to sit back and think too much. And he's gone on to the, I think a little bit, the over mechanical overthinking thing. And that's what sometimes too much free time on your hands can kind of do. And we're trying to trend it back to what made him great when he was playing his best was the fact that he was a very raw player. He was good at playing golf. who didn't have good mechanics that got mechanics, but was still very much just playing golf. Like wasn't being mechanic. Like, so the mechanics got better, but it was still in that kind of art end of the spectrum mm-hmm. where he was kind of hitting shots and just going. And then when you can't, when you have to go months without really being able to play, you just sit there, sit back and think and watch too many swing videos and kind of, and you can lean way too hard on the other end of the spectrum where you are swinging better, hitting it better, but not scoring better because you're not actually playing golf. How are you helping him with that part now then? So like taking information away rather than adding? Um, A lot of it is just how to practice. And the biggest thing is getting him to buy in. Um, it's the hardest part I think for people to reach that kind of mastery stage is that especially people that are kind of alphas that want to be in control is letting things become subconscious is getting to that highest level where you completely trust that I don't have to think about this. Like I can now think about the shot shape and the target. And I don't have to think about my takeaway and it's still going to be good. Like it's, it goes back to the early conversation. Like it's hard to change for the good, but it's hard to change for the bad, just because you stop thinking about it. It's not going to go to crap immediately with like in five swings, just because you stop thinking about it. And it's like, it's getting him to trust that you work harder than almost anybody I've ever met. You put in all this time. That time's not for not like, you're learning, let it go. Like it's, it's kind of, and that's the hardest part is like someone who wants to be in control, seemingly giving up control. And it's kind of convincing them that you're not actually giving up control. You're just shifting the focus to something else. Love it. Well, let's, um, let's hope you help him with that. And I'm, I'm sure you will. And uh, we'll see him back to, you know, where he belongs really in top hundred, isn't it? So that's cool. Um, let's talk about putting, Daniel. I know you've got a, uh, a Sam putt lab. And, well, you told me, you mentioned you make putters. Let's start there. Tell me yeah. about your putters, your babies. I want to know what they look like. Um, so I'm a big, I would say the thing that turned me off of engineering a lot of times is that a lot of times in engineering, it's function over form. And I'm a big believer that, I like things that look pretty while also being able to perform. So I would say the putters that I make look very traditional. Okay. You can't really tell there's technology in them from the outside. And that's the kind of goal is to make it look like it's nothing special. Um, but they're made in a way where the, so it's a blade putter that looks a lot like an answer or a Newport two or any other type of putter of that kind of ilk. And the difference is the body's made out of titanium. So the head itself 
empty only weighs about 90 grams. Um, and then it has very heavy tungsten weights um, hidden in the heel and the toe. So it looks like a very traditional blade putter yet has a super high MOI and forgiveness factor. So the goal was to make something that was kind of more forgiving than a lot of the mallet putters on the market without having to look like a spaceship um, and make something that still had also feel. So titanium is kind of right between carbon steel and stainless steel as far as hardness goes. And I wanted something that if you hit it off center, you could feel that it was off center, but the face didn't twist and it didn't really do anything. And where I think a lot of high MOI putters, if you miss the sweet spot, it doesn't do anything, but you also can't feel that you missed the sweet. There's no feedback. I love that, man. I love that. I've always, I've always said that with the, you know, with the spaceship putters, we, let's call them that, the, the really forgiving putters, that it's great, but it almost de-skills the, the student because they don't know that they're not striking out of the middle. And, you know, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, so all the faces are milled perfectly smooth, um, which then training people, the hardest part is like people, so like, to me, it's more of a hobby. Like, I'm not trying to make any money on it. Like, but the, like one of my players plays it on the Asian tour and Japanese tour. Um, so like it's in play on t major tours. But right. letting people understand that like a lot of the stuff that you see in putters is for cheaper manufacturing purposes. And there's not actually an advantage, like the mill marks on the face and everything else. And it's all that reduces feedback and makes it, softer feeling but that's actually by making it muted and so like my putters are milled faces but they're milled perfectly flat and smooth not with deep mill marks in the face and then I use a shaft that and guys can I've put different shafts and everything but the standard shaft that I use in most of the putters is a little softer than most putter shafts these days so kind of the opposite of the stability shaft it's designed so that you're getting super high feedback on every putt that you hit um and but it's still super forgiving so the goal is to basically make it like they've kind of done with some of these hollow blade-ish driving iron like it can look like a blade at a dress it can look good and traditional but there's forgiveness in there and that was kind of the goal with the putter was to make it look super traditional feel super traditional but on your day where you're not putting good you have a little bit of help sounds uh fascinating really smart i love it when you're over the uh uk in the uh in the summer we'll have to you have to bring me one over to uh to uh have a look at it <laughs> not bad the problem is they're the way they're manufactured costs uh, exponentially more than most putters out there. And sure. because it's a hobby and I'm not really trying to make, I sell them for around what most putters, custom putters go for. So the profit margins really aren't there for it to be a, unless I were to throw a ton of money and make huge runs to kind of try to bring the cost down. Um, 
but the whole point was to try to make what I think is the best blade butter that's ever been made. So I don't want to do anything that's cut cost in a way that's going to sacrifice on quality. Sounds a beautiful. Uh, I love that, you know, you, you've been an engineer and it's, it's a sort of, uh, yeah, you're engineering it. That sounds, uh, that sounds exciting. Similar to ping in, in some sort of ways. Do you play ping, don't you? Well, you did. Uh, I have right now. I play, um, Titleist mostly across the board. Um, I don't really have a deal with anyone. I just play what I think is the best clubs at the moment. Um, I do love ping stuff. Um, the newer Titleist stuff for me perform, it's basically the same. So they perform essentially the same. And I just prefer the visual of the later Titleist stuff than the ping stuff, but it's, a bunch of my guys play ping stuff. Like I'm hundred percent on board with everything they do. And ping actually made a putter somewhat similar to mine back in the day. And they stopped making it because it was too expensive to make. And like it, and I actually didn't know that ping made a putter like that. Like I'd never knew it existed. And then I showed Paul Wood my putter. Yeah. And he's like, that's really clever. We made one kind of like that. And like that, um, but I think with mine, I moved a lot more weight than they did like so it costs even more to make yeah <laughs> and um it's a little more hidden i didn't want you to be able to tell that there's weights in it at all so when you look at it it just looks like a one piece kind of milled putter the weights and hidden i love it he's a cool cat uh paul wood we've had him on the uh on the show and he's uh yeah, I've, he's from this part of the world over in the UK. So yeah. when he comes home to see his uh, parents, he uh, always pops in. So he's a, a good guy, smart guy. Yeah, way smarter than I am. <laughs> I'm sure you guys go down some funny rabbit holes <laughs> or big some deep rabbit holes down the engineering route. A little bit. Like I, uh, Julian plays King Irons currently. And like we went there to have him hit on Enzo and hang out with him and Eric, all the PhDs down there to kind of uh, take a look at things and get things sorted. Brilliant. Um, Okay, so on the Sam Putt Lab, tell me what's your sort of favorite feature on the the Sam Putt Lab and when you're coaching and using it? So to me, the biggest thing that I see is someone who, so when I was playing putting was my biggest weakness. I would hit a ton of greens, ton of fairways. And I called myself a bad putter and I kind of made myself a bad putter. Cause I told myself I was a bad putter and didn't realize that I hit a lot of greens proximity wasn't amazing. So there weren't a ton of really makeable putts. So I got it in my head that cause I was making three or four birdies around instead of six or seven that I wasn't a good putter and then started looking at things more. But every time I got on Sam Putt Lab, I would put up a like technique score in the 90s. And everybody's, you know, couldn't really tell me why, but my consistency score wasn't awful, but it was definitely down from where it could be. And the timing score was down, like, I would say both those were more in the like mid seventies. So not terrible, but not kind of where I would like them to be. Mm. 
and then I started looking like have access to like Tiger Sam Hut Lab data and some of the other top putters that I've seen. And the things that I've seen more is the timing consistency numbers are off the charts and the technique is actually on the lower side. So about, I would say 10-ish years ago, I kind of realized that the more important thing is that you're doing the same thing every time, not making a bunch of almost perfect strokes, but no two strokes are actually the same. So by themselves, they're all great, but you can't repeat it. Um, and that kind of went along the same lines that we talked about in the full swing of kind of you get consistency by doing the same thing every over and over again. It's not searching. It's kind of having a plan and attacking things one at a time and you don't move on until you've actually fixed step one. Step one is step one because it's the most important thing and you, there's no reason to go to step two until you fix step one. So like to me, the thing I look at most is the kind of acceleration, deceleration profile and um, consistency and timing is because even if what you do isn't ideal, if you can repeat it over and over again, you will be a great putter. Because um, at the end of the day, if you can start a putt online with the correct speed and can read a green, you're making butts. And green reading is a separate category, but like if you can, if you, the timing consistency is there, you will hit putts with good speed and start them online. Whether that line is, so what, you see a lot of guys do is they will adjust their read. So someone say someone has a right aim tendency. It's not necessarily that they can't aim. It's that they know their stroke might be cut slight loop where they cut across it. And so they're aiming their stroke to end up at zero kind of at impact and started online. So if you change that person's aim, now all of a sudden they can't make putts. Right, look, the technique score will go up, the zero, it'll look zeroed out and everything looks great, but they weren't aiming right because they can't aim. They're aiming right because they don't hit it straight. Like their, their end point isn't the same as their starting point. And so they're shifting the starting point to make the end point be kind of where you want it to be. Just as you would, most guys that draw and fade it aren't aiming right at the flag when they're trying to hit it next to the flag. Yeah. And it's Tiger, kind of, Tiger's that way, isn't he? You know, he aims yep. right and pulls it. Yep. And that's a super comp. That's a, and right and left aimers tend to have tendencies where, you know, one group tends to shift the ball back online with the path and the other one tends to manipulate the face to get it online. And there's, within those groups of people, there's actually pretty set patterns that are predictable about if someone has this issue and they can putt with any skill, this is how they're going to manage that. And so to me, a lot of times when I'm teaching putting, it's not about hitting perfect numbers. It's about managing relationships and just making sure they have the awareness of this is kind of what you need to do. And over time, people tend to adjust their reads. Um, so like I have a player who throws up great numbers who always is picky on the mechanical side of his Sam putt lab. But like the other day he put up a consistency score at 97, which is the highest wow. I've ever seen um, and a timing of like 91 and his technique was like, you know, 80. And he's like, that's not good. And it's like, 
but you start fiddling with that one, the more important numbers are going to start to go down. And what he tends to do is the misses to tend to leave it slightly open and start right. But then when we, I tested like breaking putts, all he does is shift his aim to make putts. So he un, basically dies the ball, tends to die the ball in on right to left putts because he's subconsciously playing more break because it tends to miss right. And on left to right putts, he plays a little more firm because he knows subconsciously he's that smart. he's aiming a little more right than he actually thinks he is. Mm, and it's smart. like, if those, if those are going in, it's that understand that there is a difference and there's a, but like that, that isn't a bad thing. And it's actually you manipulating it all the time and trying to fix that problem is going to make it less consistent. Hmm. And it's kind of finding and getting for him, it's a routine of making sure the setup's the same so that it's his balance point tends to get a little bit out over his toes. And so it's making sure it's so like, his problems get worse on left or right putts because it throws him more out overs and he's a better right to left putter because it shifts his balance point back. And so it's kind of like, just because you're on a left or right putt doesn't mean you can't have the same balance point. You just might have to add knee flex. And in that instance, he has less knee flex, less ankle flex, and but more bend from the hips to kind of make it and it's kind of realizing that the setup might actually have to feel different to be balanced the same. And it's that kind of sense of balance that matters more than like trying to hit the same angles with on a left or right putt as a right to left putt. It's like, you're going to be standing taller on or when the ball's above your feet than when it's below, <laughs> like that's human nature. Yeah. No, and so it's, it's okay to have more hip bend when the ball's below your feet than if that makes you, you more balanced. <laughs> yeah. So what he did is he stayed tall, but then just leaned forward. Michael, I call it Michael Jackson's thriller. Like he just starts leaning forward instead of actually bending. Okay. Good. I love that. I love to hear that you're, you know, the way you use the Sam Putt Lab is very similar myself. You're not trying to get everyone to be 0.0, get them perfect. They're not robots. We've got to understand their patterns and their tendencies and sort of manage that sort of uh, as Phil Kenyon would call it an ecosystem yeah and I think that like I think we're a product of your own experiences and everything else and have, being a guy who had a super high technique score but was a mediocre to poor putter statistically show me that like that doesn't matter and now my technique scores worse but my timing consistency numbers have gone up and I'm a much better putter now than I was when I was playing and a lot of it is like, yeah, the technique moves slightly worse because I stopped caring about it. Like I don't work on it at all. So if I do practice putting, it's all focus on speed start. Like it's all external focus and kind of hitting putts versus have Visio putting mats. I have a well putt mat that has it printed on the yeah. mat, but that's a, to me, that should be a five minute spot checkup, not like a, 45 minute part of your practice routine. Like that's a once a week, make sure things are where they're supposed to be. And then the rest of the time should be situational practice where you're actually trying to hold putts. Hmm. Love it. Well, that's good. With um, the 
acceleration deceleration profile what have you noticed that top putters uh, what does that look like i think it's a big misconception in the industry for amateur golfers yeah i would say almost all great putters and i'm going to say almost all instead of all just because i'm sure there's an outlier there that's going to catch There'll me always be one yeah, there's like a gotcha, and especially in these days with social media, I don't want to be, um, but pretty much all great putters are either kind of flat where the velocity is kind of constant through impact or kind of right before impact, or they're actually decelerating at impact. Um, telltale sign that someone's going to be a terrible putter is if their peak velocity is after impact. So what you, they accelerate, they hit the ball, which causes a slight deceleration, and then they're actually moving faster after impact than they were just prior impact. So it looks like a double mountain, like it's a higher bump on the, and that's the, I'm going to tend to hit long putts 10 feet short, and then I'm gonna to tend to hit short putts five feet by, and you just can't find the proper speed. And so then the hole shrinks to be the size of a thimble, and you feel like you can't make anything. Music to my ears. Absolutely love that, Daniel. Um, I'm very conscious of your time. We could uh, I could talk to you forever. I'm really enjoying the conversation. But just to finish with, can you share with us... Um, oh, sorry. I just want to thank Simon Howell, who is... Uh, I'm not sure if he's had an online coach with, lesson with you on Skillist. He may well have. Um, but he's a, a student of mine who put me on to you. Um, he's been like, and he helped me with a load of the questions today. So I've got to thank him. Um, he's a cool, cool guy. Um, but yeah, can you share your your sort of short game program that you've got that our guys can go on to your website and purchase? And um, if anyone's interested to have a, a skillist lesson with you, the guys in the UK here, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, the skillist app is super kind of straightforward um kind of just sign up and you can find me under the thing as coach um or i'm pretty sure i'm if not the highest rated one of the highest so i think on the home page of top instructors it's one of the first few um so that should be pretty easy to find um but and actually the short game video stuff is available also through Skillist on the app. So then everything is in one place and then you don't have to actually download it. Like it's saved in their cloud and you can pull it up kind of whenever. So that's the one I recommend people to have because it's a little more convenient. To, and then the short game video series I did, I broke everything up into shorter videos that are covering a specific scenario or shop. Um, so that you can watch them and they're designed to be watched one at a time, not necessarily like you don't have to sit down for 45 minutes and watch everything straight through. It's learn this shot. And then once you have this shot, watch a next video to learn a different shot. And so there is a lot of overlap in the videos because I filmed them as if you'd never seen any of the other videos. Mm -hmm. um, and as someone watches more and more, I think they understand the simplicity is that there is a bunch of overlap. And so it's not as many changes as most people would think to hit a wide variety of shots. So to me, the more variables you're changing, the less predictable the outcome. 
So the goal is to create a system that is simple and repeatable with making kind of changing one thing at a time to change the ball fight or the spin rate or whatever to affect the outcome. It's certainly not the only way to do it. There's a million different ways to kind of get it done. But I think it's set up to be the most basic, simple thing that everyone from like Julian uses it and thinks statistically is one of the best short games on the European tour and all the way down to plenty of 20 and 30 handicaps use it as well because what i try to enjoy now believes is the simplicity of it is what makes like the more you do it the better at it you get so like it you don't outgrow it it just becomes that your level of control and expertise gets better as the skill and talent gets better so and if you look at it is like what Steve Stricker and Jason Day do is super one-dimensional, very simple, kind of, they all have very straight arms, <laughs> not a lot of wrists that kind of very, what you would call very vanilla, yet statistically have great short games, even though they're pretty one-dimensional as far as what they do. And then you have the guys like Phil, who's super talented, hits an array of shots, but probably statistically in his best years or maybe on par with them, but generally is a little less consistent than they are because he's got 47 different shots he can hit and he has to choose the right one for each scenario. And I think the fewer changes you make, the more predictable kind of things can become. And I think in one of the videos I kind of cover is that like if you can chip it to six to eight feet, you can have an up and down percentage better than 50%, which would be a huge improvement for most amateurs and tour players out there. And it's kind of understanding that you don't have to be, you don't have to hit this to a foot. Like if you're in a tough situation, eight feet can be a great shot and kind of accepting that the goal here is to have the tightest average, not, oh, I hit one to two feet, but the next one I left in the bunker and didn't get it out like it's those all count so it's almost playing like you're playing worst ball not a scramble finding the way to on your worst day how can it still be acceptable love that love that brilliant daniel thank you very much for your time um on instagram what's the handle uh i believe that's just dan Carher. yep and then i think twitter is dan Carher golf Perfect. Great stuff. Yeah. Have really a somewhat unique name so that odds are if it's you type my name with golf, it's me who's coming up. <laughs> You'll find, yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for uh, coming on to the show and have a, uh, a wonderful uh, 2022. You too. Thanks for having me. Thank you.